you're watching We Heart Therapy special series EFT Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Annabelle Bugatti, aka Dr. Bell, licensed marriage and family therapist and certified EFT supervisor and therapist here in fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. And I am super excited to bring back Dr. Claire Rosamond, who is from Australia, and she is the founder, the, the leader of the um, Australia Center for EFT right um and she's a psychologist right clinical psychologist out in Australia and she is one of our EFT trainers and she's amazing we you might recognize her from an episode we did before um talking about I believe it was porn addiction right EFT yeah. and porn addiction and guess what she published a book which is super exciting hold up a copy of your book there Claire, it's super exciting. Yes, it's an emotionally focused therapy guide to relationship loss, life after love. And uh, we will tell you where to find that online for purchase at the end of our video. And I will include links to it in this book. And by the way, don't forget to buy a copy of my book, <laughs> Using Relentless Empathy in the Therapeutic Relationship. So Thank you, Claire, again, so much for being with us. And I know I practiced your introduction and I probably butchered it when, when we started. <laughs> but no, thank you again so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's so nice to be back on your show. I was saying to a group of EFTers the other day that, you know, you've arrived in the EFT world when you're on Annabelle's show. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's so sweet. Oh. That's so sweet that that's even a thing. Oh, thank you guys. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, and thank you guys for watching. You know, I really, this is a labor of love and I, you know, I love EFT and I love learning and I figured, Hey, if I have all these questions, then others probably do. So, and you know, I think it's great to hear from the other trainers. They all have something special to offer. And you know, when I was at the summit in 2017, I met all these trainers that I never knew existed. And I thought, well, it's kind of a shame. I didn't know that they were out there. So that also partially inspired my channel. It's like, hey, I want people to know that there's lots of trainers out there who are amazing and, and have something unique that they offer to the field and our development of EFT. And certainly your work is incredible. And, you know, losing relationship is, is a big one, right? We do have people that lose relationship. And so let's talk about, so in your book, when we're talking about relationship loss, now are we talking about all the ways that a relationship, we can lose relationship through death, divorce, breakup? I mean, talk to us about loss. Yeah, it's a huge topic. And, you know, it's one that I've not focused on as much. I think I was drawn to EFT because I'm eternally optimistic about relationships and the power of attachment and all about building bonds. And that's what I think becomes so addictive for us EFT therapists. We love seeing people connect heart to heart and the good that that does. And so, so much of my work has been about building loving bonds and how to build and maintain and strengthen bonds. And then I started thinking, uh oh, what do we do when bonds sadly break down or when a relationship mm -hmm. comes to a natural ending or when there's a rupture that can't be repaired or a loss through bereavement? There are so mm -hmm. many losses that we can experience and loss is really part of love. And yes. so 
we can focus so much on the building of the bonds that it can feel a little bit all at sea when it comes to looking at what happens when relationships break down. Yes. So that's what prompted me to really start thinking about this and mm-hmm. looking at how attachment theory and EFT can help us through a loss. Because mm-hmm. yeah. our, our training and, and our theoretical models have so much to offer to help people through a loss. That's absolutely wonderful. And I love that what you're saying, you know, and, and EFT, uh, Emotionally Focused Therapy, pioneered by Sue Johnson, is founded and rooted in a platform of attachment science. And that, that basically attachment is the science about how we human, right? And it tells us about how we do emotion or don't do emotion, the behaviors attached to that, and how we make sense of the world, the people around us and our place in it. And, you know, so EFT takes that foundation. It's a lens of understanding humanity and human behavior and why we do the things that we do. And EFT gives us a map for turn by turn directions with how basically how to help people human better and be better humans. Right. And losing relationship. You know, I love what you said. We do spend so much of our time, especially as therapists, Um, couples therapists specializing in helping people rebuild their bonds and we don't always get a lot of airplay about how to cope with it when a relationship is lost um, when it dies a natural death or an unnatural death or it ends Mm. and you know I is something that I'm passionate about because I have experienced divorce myself and I love helping people feel like they can redeem their love life, um, yeah. their love story, and you know, just to have someone walk with them in the pain and to know it, it, it may feel like it's going to kill you, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so having someone walk with you in that pain and help you make sense out of it. And I always tell people how you get through the loss is important because you want to deal with it with health and dignity so that you don't pack it up as emotional baggage and carry it with you into the rest of your life or future relationships. So I think that was a big thing that prompted me to write this book uh, because I wanted to validate that the pain honors the love, like loss of a bond is excruciating. If you're human and you form these connections, you risk great pain. And so loss Mm -hmm. is one of the most significant pains that we can experience Mm -hmm. and how you greet that pain can really determine whether you find the opportunity in the suffering, whether you can grow from that pain Mm -hmm. and learn more about yourself as an attachment being and be able to shape the security Mm -hmm. that you want moving forward yeah you know it's so ironic I was just thinking about how you know we're talking about relationship loss and and really in relationships so much of human behavior is how we cope with the potential of losing relationship right like all the reactivity is like I want to avoid this from happening, whether I avoid getting too close or I hyperactivate and move towards to avoid losing it you know, it's all centered around how we try to prevent loss. Yes, (laughs) And now it's like, when we go through a loss, you know, when, when it's at the stage where we can no longer prevent it and it is a reality, how do we do that? So what does attachment, what do we need to know about attachment and how that, how 
to use that to understand loss or how to cope with loss. Yeah. Well, I think attachment offers us so much in, first of all, validating the pain that comes from loss by defining love as an attachment bond. It really validates the, the pain that we experience mm -hmm. when we lose someone so special to us, but also being able to learn about uh, ourselves as an attachment being in terms of what did we learn in our closest relationships about what it means to turn to another, whether that's a good idea or not a good idea. What did we learn about our own worthiness? of love? What did we learn about interacting with our own emotional world? Because those mm -hmm. learnings then teach us our attachment strategies or how to manage closeness, distance, emotional dysregulation, big feelings, it teaches us all those important lessons that then shape how we show up in relationships. So I think that in the time of loss, it's an opportunity to be able to reflect and be able to see yourself as an attachment being and understand why you show up in the way that you do and how you learn that and how that works for you and how that might work against you at the same time so that you can use this as an opportunity for revision, for growth and for shaping and earning security in your relationships moving forward. So I feel like this is an amazing opportunity in all this pain. It's so disorganizing to your inner world. But the more disorganizing, the better, really. We know from the trauma growth literature that if something really sits you on your backside and challenges all your ideas about yourself, the world and others, then that's fertile ground for growth. And so if you can sit there in that pain and learn from that and grow stronger, then it becomes uh, like the learning and the suffering. It becomes a time of transformation. Yeah. And I think, you know, sort of what comes to my mind about this is sort of, you know, again, talking about attachment strategies is, you know, I think how people deal with the pain of loss is similar again to how they react to the emotional pain of distress, even when they're in the relationship and yeah. you find, some that come in that embrace the pain and they know they know that it's going to hurt for a while and it, and it really sucks, but they're, they're ready to start the healing process. Let's learn, let's, let's process, let's do what we can to commence the healing and other people who look for ways to avoid and escape the pain yeah. at all costs possible that may turn to self-medication that, you know, just to numb and not feel the pain because it is, and we know from from the neurology of attachment science that, you know, our brain encodes that as physical pain. Rejection is encoded physiologically the same as being stabbed. So when you feel like you're die, like your nervous system is literally telling you, yeah, that's how painful it is. It literally is physically yes. painful to lose. Yeah. Yeah. And you're so right. The way we greet that pain is impacted by our attachment strategies and the way we show up in our close relationships, of course, is impacted by our attachment strategies. So it stands to reason that our attachment strategies impact how we work through and process the pain yeah. of loss. Like if you tend yeah. to be a little more avoidant, you might pull away from the heat of that pain and mm. you might be far better at focusing on the practical work of grief. Uh, where you might then neglect the emotional work. And we know from the dual processing model of bereavement that we need to pay attention to both the practical and the emotional aspects of grief. Where someone who's a bit more anxiously attached might be better at focusing on the emotional work of grief, but they could get swamped in the intensity of that. And they might yeah. struggle 
then to make the practical adjustments that they need to make to take in this new loss, this altered life circumstance for them. You know, and that's so, so important. Gosh, so there's a couple things that I want to touch on. Um, I'm just making a note so I don't lose this point. Um, so first is, um, gosh, I don't know which one is more important. I have some people come in, you know, when they're going through a loss and they're like, you know, yeah, they're, they're allowing themselves to experience the pain, but then there's still this other part of them. That's like, I need to hurry up and get over it. You know, they have a hard time really sitting in the pain and, and traveling that journey. It's like, let's rush through it. Let's get to the part where, you know, it's, it's been a week. How come I'm still crying nonstop? And it's like, this was a nine year relationship. Like I would be worried if you were just magically over it. Right. I mean, like you said, you know, the, the pain really speaks to the attachment. Right. And so of course the greater the bond, the greater the pain of, you know, that you may go through when you experience that loss or the longer, you know, it may take to process the loss. And I think it also depends on the way in which a relationship ended. Um, you know, if, if a death, if a relationship, you know, some people sort of have to process the loss and make peace with it before they can even exit a relationship because they know otherwise they won't find the courage to, make such a hard choice other people it feels like a rug was just yanked out from underneath them yes. other people just sort of feel like like their relationship suffered a long terminal illness where they just watched it slowly die over the yeah. years and you know yeah. it was like not a big surprise you know so you know when I'm sure people probably ask you this a lot as they do me when they come to your office how long is this going to take to grieve this yeah. loss and what would you say? <laughs> and the answer is grief is not linear and everyone is going to make their way through that process in their own way. And I really like to respect the emotional process there and not to try and prescribe stages or uh, milestones along the way. We have to be respectful of each person's emotional process. But we yeah. also, uh, what we can do to help that is we want to harness the pain for growth, as in we want to help people not sit so deep in the belly of the pain that they wallow and and kind of perpetuate negative ideas about self and other right. and, and the future. And we want to help people be close enough to their pain to access the wisdom embedded in that you have to go into and through the pain to get to the needs to get to the learning in that and so you have to feel it and go into it and through it but in a way that doesn't lead to you becoming engulfed you want to yeah. immerse yourself not wallow and likewise okay. for people who tend to avoid we need to help them come close enough to the heat so that they can mine that all that emotion for the wisdom and the good learning in that for growth yeah. Yeah, because so we really do want to make meaning out of it. Yeah, and each person's going to have their own path through that. They're going to have um, natural ability in certain areas. Like if we think of the emotional and the practical work of grief, people are naturally going to be better at one of those than the other. 
And that's mm-hmm. going to be related to personality factors and attachment strategies. So we want to help people build the awareness of how am I approaching this grief? Am I leaning in and, and touching the pain enough to process it and learn and grow from it? Or am I leaning right out, preferring to focus on the practicalities? Or am I neglecting the practicalities? Which, you know, it feels like a society, I mean, just does this huge disservice to people and processing emotion and just a lot of messages of hurry up and get through it and find ways to distract yourself. And, you know, we do need to process the pain. And I love what you said is it's not linear. And as I always tell people, it's not a grief event. It's called a grief process. You know, like when someone dies, it's not like, okay, we just had the funeral, buried the body. That's it. Two years is over. No more sadness, right? But when a relationship dies, why do we expect ourselves to behave differently? And we're not as patient with the process. So, you know, we want to respect that it is a process that takes place over time. And, you know, we don't want to force people to skip over it, that they don't fully process it and deal with it. And they do need to be able to experience it and make meaning out of it because the meaning helps us helps us with the process and understand what we need but it's also the point is not to keep people stuck in it we do want to help them move towards it but you know people may get stuck in grief for all kinds of reasons and that's why understanding meaning can be so important I mean you might have people whose spouses died a long time ago but they keep them very much alive like they keep their pens in the same position the last time their partner touched it, even though it might've been a decade, you know, and it's like a living mausoleum. And, and I mean, I'm sure you all have met people like that, where it's like, they, they have a hard time letting that person even kind of lay to rest. But when you lean in, it's like, maybe that person was their only attachment figure. And, you know, if I let go, then it means it's real, then they're really gone. And I have no one else. And, and there's an attachment strategy, right? Of like isolation, maybe I don't let myself turn towards other people and formulate those bonds. So of course, hanging on to this one might be more important. And, you know, I think the different types of loss are important too, because sometimes when somebody dies, it can feel almost a little bit easier in some ways to process because there's something, a reason why the relationship ended that we can tie it to versus if you know, I call it grieving the loss of the living, right? Where the corpse is still walking the earth and you might have to see it out in public, right? And it's like that knowledge can really affect people, right? And, totally. and people can have a hard time. Well, if we love each other, we sh- that must mean we should be together. And it feels so incompatible that, you know, two people love each other and can respect each other, but not be together, you know, that that could be okay and making space for that. Or, you know, they may get caught feeling like, you know, I can't make peace with this unless I kind of turn my partner into the devil, you know? And so I need to make them really bad because it's just hard to accept that two people may love each other, but may not be a good fit for each other and they want different things. Totally. It's really complicated. And I think there's so many factors that impact someone's trajectory through the process of grief. All those points you're raising about your partner living on, but not choosing you, uh, 
you might have behaved in a way that you're really not proud of. You might have been hurtful. You might have had your trust betrayed. You might have had the rug ripped out from under you so suddenly. Or you might have experienced the slow death and no matter what you could do, you couldn't save this relationship. Or there might have been a sudden unexpected loss through bereavement like the way you arrive at your grief is of course going to impact the way you process yes. that grief and the okay. meaning you make yes and that feels important too when it comes to even those who have chosen to end a relationship and the guilt yeah. they may feel yes. like somehow because I know that person is hurting or that I was it for them and they may never find love. Like they, they bear all this, they put on themselves all this guilt and responsibility and they have a hard time forgiving themselves, even though there was a part of them that knew, you know, I need to choose myself here because this isn't working and processing that grief, you know, even wanting a relationship to work, but trying so hard and maybe feeling like you're the only one trying and processing a meaning that someone may take from, I feel like, you know, choosing another path for happiness means somehow I failed at this. Like, you know, mm. all of the, the entire death of the relationship is all on my shoulders. If I just done something more, yeah. you know, so many complicated factors that can come up around grief. Yeah. And that's where I think helping people really get to know themselves and say in that example of feeling like I failed, uh, that's where I would hope that someone grieving like that could get to understand themselves more and understand where did I come to be so hard on myself and to have these standards for pass fail and where did I learn to do that and how did that way of coping help me at one stage but is now maybe hindering me now and how can I harness that in this moment and transform some of that so that I can change the meaning I'm making around this and approach my next relationship in a more flexible way where I'm not so hard on myself about pass fail and maybe then not so hard on my partner uh, so that you can move forward with more flexibility and security. Yes. And I, I can't say that re reaffirm that point enough is, you know, really being able to process and make peace with yourself. You know, and I tell people at the end of the day, whether you're with that person or not, you're the person you have to live with. And so you want to have peace and you want to have health around this so that you don't bring these issues and geographically relocate them into the next relationship. And, and I tell people when they're, when they're getting over the loss of a living relationship, you're kind of given the opportunity for a second chance. And, you know, the gift by going through therapy, we can sort of give them the gift of hindsight and hindsight is always 2020. 20. And I do say it can be a gift. So use it wisely so that you don't repeat the mistakes of the past. And you really do give your future the best chance of a second shot, you know? And, um, you know, you mentioned something a little bit before too, um, sort of about like how there's multiple layers of loss when a relationship dies. And I think some of it's like the identity, like the identity of us as a coupleship, as an us and a we, and now it's a me. When do I go from the divorced box to the single box? <laughs> you know, those kinds of things, the, the future plans that we had, you know, we were going to get married and, yeah. and we've mapped out children, grandchildren, retirement. And now all of that has changed or I moved my job and my, you know, all centered around you 
you know, my partner now that's ended. And now, you know, I'm in a place that doesn't feel like my home. And you mm. know, you talk more about that. Yeah. It's utterly disorganizing, you know, to lose someone, you, you're losing the view of the future that you had mapped out, but sometimes mm. you even view, you lose the view of the past as well. Like often when there's been a betrayal or a hurt or a disappointment, people then look back over their whole relationship with new eyes and, and can doubt the, the authenticity of those moments so it can be multi-layered and it is so disorganizing like this view of my future is now completely gone and who am I without this person without mm -hmm. this relationship or now with this reconfigured relationship how yeah. do I how do I approach life and this is where um, as I was writing the book I discovered Bowlby's four phases of grief and oh. oh this is gold because he maps out these four beautiful phases that fit so well with attachment theory and the first is numbing and that made a lot of sense to me that of course it's hard to take in the enormity of a loss of a close mm -hmm. bond but he also made the point that numbing is a way of protecting yourself from being flooded with intense emotion it's a way of of titrating the amount of emotion that you can take in any one time. Um, so that was really a validating way of looking at an adaptive process of gradually taking in the enormity of the loss. Then the next phase is yearning and searching. And that's where you try and put all your energy into reestablishing the lost connection, which is, again, really adaptive if the bond can be repaired. Uh, but not if it can't. And so he said that in this stage, people can express anger and preoccupation and endless questions and, and like trying to problem solve this and mm -hmm. find their way back, find the meaning, but now, it's got kind of akin to the bargaining phase, you know, in some of the other yeah. grief models. And I, I kind of love the bargaining phase because it's like where we play the game of how can we find a way to make this not be the end you know how can we undo the the loss basically exactly and if it can be undone then that's really adaptive mm -hmm. like you think about um like a small child running away from their parent in in a busy crowded space when the parent finds the child they'll rouse on them and that sort mm -hmm. of anger and frustration is like a corrective moment to really make the child pay attention that what they just did threatened the bond and their safety and so they want that message to be taken in so they don't do it again so that yearning and searching and the heat that that goes with that is all part of trying to re-establish the bond and I love this because even though you know it's over you still will find yourself Facebook stalking your ex-partner or asking questions of friends that know them or thinking about it again and again, talking to them in their head, in your head, whether it's angrily or beseechingly, there's all this energy going in to this lost bond. So that for me was enormously validating of the sort of wheel spinning energy that can happen. Mm -hmm. Then, this is back to your, your question, <laughs> is the next phase is despair and disorganization. And that's when someone really fully accepts the enormity of the loss and they sink into this awful gut-wrenching pain and despair around this bond cannot be restored. This person is lost to me. And with that comes enormous disorganization 
I don't know who I am, who I was, who I'm going to be moving forward. My whole life is upended. Who do I take my joys to, my sorrows to, my fears, my concerns? Who's going to look after me when I feel vulnerable and sick? Mm -hmm. And who's going to make me chicken soup? Mm -hmm. Who's my person to call when something great happens? Mm -hmm. Like that utter disorganization is huge. Yeah, too. What, what's also strikes me as important too, part of that disorganization is also like the, the daily routine. It's a person you're used to seeing every single day, you know, um, you know, used to interacting with, used to texting. And so even like some of the habits, like I get off work, I text my spouse. Oh, oh well, I can't text my spouse anymore. And you, you just yeah. notice these places, it like starts to uncover like these voids right? Where it's like, oh, this was a place in my routine where my spouse used to fill every morning. We used to get up and do coffee. Not anymore, right? Like, It's like a fresh wound with each reminder. And so you can see how when a fresh wound like that comes up, someone might go back to numbing for a while because it's just overwhelming. Or they might go back into yearning and searching for a bit. And you might oscillate between them all in one day even. Mm -hmm. And that's all okay. That's all part of the process. It's all our very human way of exploring and understanding and making sense of this loss. And the, the fourth phase that we hope people can move to is reorganization and detachment. So that's when they can reorganize their inner world that they don't take their attachment needs to this person anymore, that they've built other bonds that they can take their Mm -hmm. needs to, that they've redefined this relationship in their mind. Mm -hmm. They've attended to the practical adjustments they need to make, and now they can detach and let go. And other bonds may not necessarily be rushing into a new romantic relationship, right? Um, And again- to a sore heart yes yes and there's such a bad um pop culture cliche i don't know if you guys have it in australia but out here they say well the fastest way to get over one person is to get under another worst advice ever guys do not do that but so many people do that is they will band-aid the pain numb the pain with one night stands you know they'll rush into another relationship they'll start dating before they're ready and you know, um, maybe some, we could also address some of the signs that let you know, you're not ready to move on. Right. Mm-hmm. Be, if you cannot stop talking about your ex, if you can't go on a date or even hang out with a friend without bringing up your ex, without bringing up a memory, even if you, it's to talk about how much you hate them. Right. Yeah. If you, if you cannot even, if you still have anger towards them, Yes. Not ready. Not yeah. ready. Yeah. Unanswered mm. questions going through your mind, little rants as you're gardening or vacuuming that you think about all the things you'd like to mm. say. They're all signs of still being engaged and still mm. being in that yearning and searching place. It's and if your heart hasn't healed, not ready. And it's okay to not be ready. And you know, we don't want to judge people who might some people get out of relationships and they are ready. But again, it depends because some people have done their grieving before they sign on the dotted line. So by the time they pull the, you know, the plug on the relationship, they might have fully grieved it and they're completely done. Whereas maybe the other spouse who is now just coming to that place because they've just been made aware that their partner is, 
you know, completely left the relationship, checked out, you know, and, and oftentimes there are signs that that's already happened, but people may be in different phases, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's really, it's, it's a, such a personal thing and I don't want to judge anybody's process, but I think that if you can ask yourself, what have I learned from this loss? What have I learned that was my contribution to the disconnection? Even if the other partner has been clearly in the wrong and been hurtful, there still might be things that you can learn about how you might have sent unclear signals or how you weren't really connected to what you wanted and needed and therefore couldn't signal it clearly because you weren't connected there. There'll be things that you can learn from. And if you can look at this loss and see yourself in, in new ways and use this opportunity for growth from the pain that comes from the disorganization of losing someone special, then, then there's so much work that can be done there around what could I do differently next time? What have I learned about myself? What do I need to, to forgive myself for or let go of? How do I need to find some empathy or forgiveness potentially for my ex-partner so that I'm not still entangled how can I lovingly let this relationship go and lead with security into my next relationship and a reminder guys forgiveness is in no way saying that what happened was okay it's yeah. just releasing the need to punish them or hold it against them it releases you from the bondage of thinking about them and allowing them to continue to rent space in your mind in your heart where you're just hanging on to it because it, it punishes you more than anything else. You know, there's, they're moving on with their life and they're, you know, not still thinking about it, whereas you might think about it all the time. Yeah. You know, it, it, forgiveness may be, I see that, you know, you were limited in your healthy coping strategies and this is why you behave so badly. And it sucks that that happened, but you know, I wish you well. And part of me getting out of this was my way of saying it's not okay. Yeah. And I think of that as a survival narrative. It's like a narrative that says, I love deeply and I hurt deeply and I've lost love, but I've learned from this. I've forgiven mm -hmm. where it felt appropriate to myself and to others. And I can move on stronger and I can open my heart to new love. And when you can say that, and it feels authentic and it feels right, then I'd say you're so ready to go and shape the security that you want in your next relationship. Yeah. And, you know, if you get out of a relationship and, you know, you feel like you've healed, but you find yourself wanting to avoid relationships, there's a chance you're really not fully healed. You know, your heart is still feeling the impact of that wound to where it's saying, I don't want to get close to people again. I don't want to let my heart out there. I don't want to be vulnerable because it just hurt too bad. And, you know, all relationships end badly. And, you know, those, those kinds of narratives, the, the forecaster of gloom and doom is not a healed heart. Yes. So true. I think that's the art of knowing, have I lent in and, and mind all the goodness in this emotional experience to grow from this? Or have I kind of skimmed the surface in my rush mm -hmm. to move on? That's something that I think of as um, like Goldilocks flexibility in terms of not yeah. too much emotional heat, but not mm -hmm. too much emotional distance either. It's getting the balance just right of being able to connect with yourself in those moments. And, you know, the process of, of grief 
it can be, I mean, it's so kind of layered, I think it's, you know, just as we are in relationship and, you know, the way we understand what's happening between us can kind of unfold over time. I think it'd be the same thing in processing loss. And let me just give an example. So when I went through my own divorce, um, you know, I think there was so much anger when I first left because I had been trying to vocalize my hurt, my pain, asking for help for, you know, let's work on this. And, and then feeling like I was turned into the devil at the end, you know, and, you know, there's healed hearts there and, and everything's amicable and fine now. Um, but, you know, I had so much anger and that anger felt important to me because it was like me feeling like I was asserting my pain and my right to my pain and that it was advocating for myself that I didn't make this decision lightly. It wasn't just something very flippant. It was, you know, well thought out. A lot of heart space went into this decision and there's a lot of pain there. And, you know, that there was a real justification and it wasn't, it took a long time to sort through the anger. And then once I felt like my pain was finally understood and I could let go of the anger was when the sadness started to come in, in even in relationship where you want it to end, you know, even if you knew that that might've been the right decision, it doesn't mean you won't still feel grief, you know, because you still have oh. hope, you know, most people don't get into marriages planning for it to fail, you know? So there is like, you know, all the sweat equity you put into it, all the hopes that you had and the hard work you you invested trying to make it work, trying to maybe get your partner um, to understand, to work on it. And then just the pain of having to let go of that, of, of mm-hmm. having it not work out, trying to reconcile what that means with your own values of relationship, your relationship ethic. Are people going to think that I just give up, that I don't value relationship, which is not mm-hmm. true. You know, I think people can look back and with peace and say, I literally tried everything I could. Like I said, at the end of the day, you're the person you have to live with. You know, you have to be able to have peace on the inside, but you know, it took such, I was so busy holding on to my anger until I felt like people could really get that this wasn't just, Oh, I don't want to be in my marriage anymore. Cause that wasn't it. You know, there was genuine loss there and people, it took a while for some people to get it, you know, and, yeah. and for various reasons, because of who we were kind of some, you know, well, my ex was a little well known, you know, it, it, I didn't have a space where I could really talk to people, let them know what was going on. And I didn't feel like it was right. I wouldn't walk around trashing my ex or saying hurtful things, you know, and so I think people were very surprised. And this, this might be another aspect of grief we need to talk about is when everyone else starts grieving your relationship. And that's a layer that can be so hard to deal with. Um, you have friends that you may lose in the process. You very much like some couples, you know, friends go with that one, friends go with that one, family members, or, you know, again, you might've fully grieved the loss by the time you're getting out of it. But if family is just starting that process and, you know, maybe you're ready to move on, but your family's not ready to accept a new dating partner because they're still losing a daughter-in-law or a son-in-law. And now they have to suddenly like shift 
like a yo-yo from, uh-oh, we lost this one, but now you're bringing someone new to Christmas dinner, you know, like, whoa, this, this is like, you know, yeah, that's yeah, important the, the, too. The ripple effect mm-hmm. can be huge. And, and in um, consensually non-monogamous relationships or polyamorous relationships where one connection ends or is redefined and other connections within that system live on, there's mm-hmm. this complexity the forming and the maintaining and the losing of bonds. I think Bobby says those are the times where the self is defined. They're the, they're the hardest, most complex times. Yeah. And even in, in monogamous um, heterosexual relationships, you know, when you, when you're friends with another coupleship and they don't want to take sides, they want to remain friends with both partners after the relationship ends and finding out how do we navigate that? What are the boundaries to where we can still hang out, but we don't, maybe we don't ask about the other partner, you know, um, we don't get angry that you're still friends, you know, whatever it is, it's reconciling all those relationships and redefining them, you know, Mm. and, you know, maybe you had a relationship with my family, you were very close and now like, you know, is it okay for the family to maintain a bond with you outside of our relationship? Or maybe we had children together and we still have to have some semblance of a bond, but mm. then, you know, later on new partners come in or maybe the partner left you for someone and there's already a new partner and yeah. can be traumatized. I mean, there's so many exactly. aspects. And that's why grief is so complex. And I think it needs the same honoring and airtime that we give the building of bonds. We spend so much time thinking about building bonds and tending them and dealing with disconnections and ruptures and repairs. I think the losing of bonds, the ending of bonds needs just as much time and care and attention and nuanced attention. It's going to be different for every person in every situation, the complexities, the ripple effects. It's, it's huge. It's so individual. And it is just so important. And and I know we kind of stressed this before, but, you know, again, you get to choose how you grieve this. If you grieve it with dignity, if you really do do the work to learn the lessons and move forward. And again, the lessons might even be something like how you chose your partner. You know, Um, I know a lot of people and, and the best way to make to have success in the future but is by learning those lessons. So a lot of people, I know that the divorce statistics for second and third marriages are lower and lower. And I think part of that is because people don't really learn the lessons. They think, okay, well, if I just pick a partner who is different than my last partner, then I will have changed the system. And that might be true to a degree, but a lot of times if we don't understand the real mechanics behind the relationship, the emotional inner workings of our dynamic of my partner and myself, then not even knowing it, I can end up going and finding someone who maybe personality wise seems very different on the outside, but emotionally the mechanics, it's the same thing. And we end up repeating the process. And also again, not recognizing how we are the same. And if we don't change ourselves, we can end up picking a partner from the same place that might've caused us to choose a partner that might not have been healthy. Maybe it was just not knowing our value and sort of going for the low hanging fruit. And because we didn't think we were worth something better, someone better. And then you pick the 
the low hanging fruit and you get a sour stomach, right? <laughs> and of course that relationship expires, but then if we don't work on our value, we end up going back out there and picking another low hanging fruit, yeah. you know? So yeah, it's more so than- much of this, So much of this work is about getting to know yourself and how mm-hmm. you might contribute to disconnection or how you might be drawn to partners that re-wound you, how you might abandon yourself, how you might um, make decisions based off reactivity rather than from really getting to know yourself as an emotional being and connecting with your wants in your needs and how it feels to signal those clearly. Mm-hmm. And that kind of work will really help. It'll help you get to know yourself at a deeper level and help you know what you want and need moving forward in a partner. And I think that can be so amazing. And, and I know it can be hard when you're really immersed in the pain, people are like, forget the lessons. I'm I don't, all I learned was that my partner sucks, you know, it's like, no, no, that's not the message, but you know, and my own experience going through marriage counseling in the past, um, you know, through my church at the time really played a part in, in me wanting to become a marriage counselor. And, you know, some that know me, I grew up in a very religious household and I learned about love and relationship within the model of our church doctrine. And I, I ironically enough, went into marriage loaded with cliches, nothing very tangible and applicable. And I thought I knew everything about marriage. And so going through that process of marriage counseling grew me up big time and taught me a lot. Um, I thought I knew about what it took to make a marriage work. And it it wasn't just a magic recipe. You know, you have this, you have this and, oh, you got to be able to compromise and communicate. Those are such cliches when people, you know, when they're just used as these like catch-alls for marriage, but no one actually knows what that manifests as, how that plays out in human dynamics. And, you know, what I learned about myself in through the marriage counseling process was what I was made out of, where my wounds were. Um, I learned a lot about what it takes to make a marriage fail, you know, which was not, you know, aside from the obvious, don't do drugs, don't abuse each other, don't cheat, those kinds of things. I mean, duh, those are obvious, but there's a lot more to the dynamic. You don't have to be a scoundrel in order to not be a good mate. And I wanted to learn, gosh, you know, maybe my partner wasn't a good mate, but am I also, am I a good mate? Was I not a good mate? Because I want to be a good mate. What amazing questions for you to ask yourself. And it's, it's really brave to ask yourself that it's so destabilizing. It's much easier to just demonize the other person, Mm -hmm. but by doing that, you lose your, your power, your control over being able to shape and earn security and do it differently next time. But the way you ask yourself, yourself, those questions that is using the pain of loss for growth. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would encourage everyone to do. Mm-hmm. I have to Take tell you, something. There was, there's a book that I have and I've never even read it. And I bought it probably like 15 years ago, but the title was enough to like really shake me into a lot of self-reflection. It was called, what is it like to be married to me? And I thought, huh never asked myself that question I've always been focused on what is it like to be married to my partner you know full of blame 
And I never stopped to think about, gosh, what might it be like for my partner who's on the receiving end of me? You know, am I showing up in the relationship as the kind of person, the kind of spouse that I want to be? Mm. You know, and How am I, yeah, am I showing up in hurtful ways and expecting my partner to respond kindly to that? And are those realistic expectations? You know, so that's yeah. part of, I think, going back and looking at our place in it you know yeah am I sending unclear signals do I think I'm being really clear but is there a difference between my intent and my impact because it always feels crystal clear to us but it doesn't always to the other person yes oh I love so can you say a little bit more about that the difference between intention and impact yeah, I, I just find that so helpful in relational work, in helping people look at what was your intent and then how is it for you to hear about the impact that's so different? Like I meant so well that, you know, I, I didn't say anything hurtful. I went quiet because I was trying to not make things worse between us. But then when I hear that my silence was experienced by you as utter abandonment, I'm horrified. Or the flip side is, I, you know, I'm telling you what I want to need. I can't be any more clear about that. The fact that you're not giving me what I want to need must mean you don't care about me. And then to hear that, oh, wow, you experience me as critical and demanding and that frightens you and you go quiet. So that's why you don't meet me where mm-hmm. I want you to meet me. Mm-hmm. That's profound. Yeah. I think we, we know our intent. And we expect that to land the same way. Yes. So I think also, you know, what's what I've figured out in the last probably year is I think people are more aware of their non-intentions than they are of their intentions. And they are very different. Not intending to hurt somebody isn't the same as an intentionally trying not to hurt them. Right. Because yes. I hear this all the time. I'm like, I was just being honest. I, I wasn't intending to hurt you. Well, it's like saying, okay, well, you stepped on my toes, but until you admit that I didn't intend to step on your toes and I'm not going to get a bandaid for your feet. Well, what good is that going to do? If you intended to step on my toes or not, my toes are still hurting. Does your intention change the fact that my toes weren't, that my toes are hurting? No, it doesn't, you know, but I think most often people feel like if I admit that my, if, if I speak to my partner's pain, that yes, their toes were stepped on, even if I don't mean it, they feel like it's an admission of guilt. And yeah. I always have to say, it's, it's like when you get a speeding ticket from a police officer and what do they say? Signing this is not an admission of guilt, you know, and ironically, it's, you know, not being willing to say, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry that your feet were hurt. You know, I really didn't mean to do that. I'll be more careful. It really was an accident. The more likely you are to show care and attention, the more likely the person to believe you didn't mean it, you know, but people walk around the world. And, and hopefully this is going to feel kind of profound to some people. And they always talk about their lack of intentionality. I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to do that. And I often will kind of challenge them. I'll say, so what did you mean to do? And they're like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. People actually very unintentionally move through a relationship, maybe even move through life, move through career. And so things can happen very unintentionally. Right. And yeah, it feels bad when others misunderstand our 
our motives as something evil or bad or hurtful. And yeah, that totally sucks. I mean, it sucks for anybody, but also we want to make sure that in the process of being unintentional, that we also make sure to replace it with acts of intention, right? If I want to make sure that I am not hurtful to my partner, let me make sure that I intentionally choose my words or choose the way that I present myself in a way where I'm trying to be conscious about their feelings and be respectful, even though I might be having to share something that's hard to hear. Yeah, that's so much more other focus. Because when you defend your good intent, you're placing the priority on defending your good name over Mm -hmm. meeting the other person in pain, which speaks to the bond. So when you defend your good intent, that's like a self-reliant individual coping strategy, but it kind of throws your bond under the bus because you're not caring for this other person right in that moment where Mm -hmm. they're feeling pain. So I love what you're saying that if you can be intentionally clear about Uh, trying to care for the other, trying to anticipate how you could step on their toe, then you're prioritizing the bond and nurturing the goodness between you rather than just defending your good name. Because you'll have a good name, but end up with tattered bonds around you. Yeah. My pastor always used to say, you can be right or you can be happy, but you can't be both. (laughs) Some people are like, why can't I be right and happy? Well, it's like, if if you're going to walk all over your partner to the point where they feel completely emotionally beaten down yeah. and your relationship pays the price, is being right more important than having a bond? Yes. You know, what does being right really mean to you? Yeah. You know, and it's is it really in loss? It's the same in loss. If you can prioritize being able to learn and grow and think relationally over just defending yourself, you'll get so much more goodness and growth out of this loss to carry yeah. with you to nurture bonds moving forward than just being right. Because then you've yeah. got to find a partner who's equally right. And how does that yeah. work? <laughs> you then you get two people that kind of end up in this this Mexican standoff where they're both fighting for who's right and they get to a stalemate and nobody really wins in that place and both people feel bad you know and and that's another thing I love about EFT is being able to make space for more than one truth or for two people's pain to coexist together and it doesn't have to be a your pain or my pain it can we both have pain and we can both comfort and respond to each other's pain and work on it and you know your pain shouldn't mean that my pain doesn't matter and me honoring your pain doesn't mean that my pain doesn't matter you know yeah that's right being human can be so complicated right (laughs) and there are so many aspects to to grief and loss and you know sometimes I think people I think maybe I said this before wonder which is easier to get over somebody who's passed away or somebody who's still alive I think it, again it really kind of depends you know um yeah. but it can be harder when the when the corpse is walking out there <laughs> yeah. but so if somebody's going through loss can we can we maybe speak to and maybe it was just sort of outlining the the stages of grief Um, that Holby offers but is there sort of a predictable process that we can like leave people with like what can they expect as they enter into that process of grief yeah I think um I have sort of three groups of of advice that might help people through that process because it might look different for everyone but I would say first of all uh, validate the 
pain and see the opportunity in it. And what I mean by that is really recognizing that the pain honors the love. Be kind to yourself in that place. The fact that you can open your heart and love so deeply says amazing things about you as a human and your capacity to love again. It just hurts so much right now because it matters so much, but you will love again. And this is a process that will get better in time. You will grow, grow stronger from this. So that's sort of the first thing to sustain you on the journey. The second is to try and understand yourself as an attachment being. So looking at those lessons that you learned in close relationships, looking at how you show up in close relationships, how you manage big feelings in yourself and in your closest people, uh, how that then impacts the signals that you send. And I really want to encourage people to be kind to themselves in processing that, that you learn those strategies for such good reasons and they've helped you so much, but at other times they might've also gotten in the way of someone being able to meet your needs. So this gets you out of blaming yourself or blaming the other and more looking at two well-intentioned people whose signals all got scrambled up and it's terribly sad, but you can learn from this and move forward. And then the third thing I would say is healthy grief is really a balancing act between feeling the pain and making the practical adjustments to your life that you need to make. And so if you know your own attachment strategies and know how you tend to meet your pain, like whether you tend to avoid your pain and stay a bit more practical or whether you can get engulfed by your pain, then knowing that will help you be able to either tap the brakes on too much emotion or rev the accelerator and leaning in and listening and tuning into your emotions so that you can mine the goodness and be able to get all the, the benefit of learning and growth. So I would, that would be my three sort of groups of things to focus on to help you in the journey, but it's going to be different for everyone. Yeah, and, and the length of time really is going to vary. And at the end of the day, it's not a race. Don't hurry to the finish line. It's going to take time. It's going to take um, a process, and this process needs to happen. I love what you said, you know, healthy grief, you know, and I find that people who wallow, who get stuck in wallowing, it's sort of that, that thing of too much emotion, I would kind of say is maybe still disorganized emotion, like emotional experiencing, but maybe not connected enough to the meaning because there is something very organizing and soothing about making sense out of what that emotion is trying to communicate and being able to address the needs identified by that. And, um, you know, and when you talk about the practical aspects, um, you know, can you give just a, maybe a short example of what you mean by practical adjustments? Yeah. So the practical adjustments might be that you have to change the way your finances are organized, or you might have to, uh, if you were living together, you might have to move properties. Uh, you might be now co-parenting children or sharing pets between you. You might um, be all in the same social circle. So you might have to make some adjustments to how, who's, who are your go-tos. And as you were saying before, the boundaries around those relationships they're the sorts of practical adjustments, but they, they could be many and varied. Yeah, yeah. So these are all really, really wonderful. And, you know, um, we could probably talk all day about this, but we want you guys to buy her book. <laughs> so um, is your book on Amazon? Yes, it's on Amazon and 
um, the book depository and Rowledge and all those major sites. Yeah. Perfect. So again, the name of your book is an emotionally focused guide to relationship loss, life after love. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's going to be an amazing read for you guys. If you are preparing to deal with the end of a relationship where you are dealing with the end of a relationship and you're going through that loss, again, we want to do healthy grief mm-hmm. and definitely the ticket. And, um, you know, always recommend finding a good therapist in your area. And always you can go on to iceft.com, I-C-E-E-F-T, to find a, an emotionally focused therapist in your area. And it is global. There, you know, like I said, Claire is in Australia. I'm in Las Vegas, Nevada, and everywhere in between. And lots of other countries have EFT therapists in them. So you will be able to find someone there. And Again, EFT is the gold standard, so that's why that's why we do it and why we love it. And um, I will put a link to Claire's book, the Amazon link, in the description for the video on YouTube. So if you guys are watching this on YouTube, otherwise you can probably just Google the book title in your Amazon search bar. And Claire, folks want to like email you, or if they are a therapist and they want to maybe get training from you or invite you to their area to do a training how can they find you uh, either on the aceft website which is www.aceft.com.au or uh, i have another website at clairerosamond.com as well it's probably the best way dot com but the the air the australia eft has a dot com dot au for australia yes. okay perfect Perfect. So we will make sure that those also get into the description for this video. So thank you again, Claire, so much for being with us today and just sharing your wisdom and just your heart through your book. Oh, thank you for having me. It's always lovely to chat to you. Absolutely. Such an honor. And, and thank you guys um, to the community therapists who are the, the faithful watchers. Thank you for watching, for giving feedback, for suggesting topics. Um, it's just incredible to hear the feedback from you guys and just to receive the love and support. Um, this has started as a passion project, very grassroots, you know, it's my way to help other EFT therapists. So I, I just feel so honored to hear you guys share how you felt touched by some of our material. So I'm going to keep it coming. So make sure that you guys get your copy of Claire's book um, for sale. It's going to be amazing. And make sure that you hit subscribe because more videos are on the way. Don't forget to buy my book, Using Relentless Empathy in the Therapeutic Relationship, Connecting with Challenging and Resistant Clients for Helping Professionals. Available on Amazon or on my website, www.drbugatti.com.